fair to say that children's fascination, if not obsession, with dinosaurs begins when they first encounter the rows of fearsome teeth that line the jaw of a Tyrannosaurus rex. Similarly, the discovery of the first T-Rex skeleton more than 100 years ago ignited public fascination with the beasts. It also revealed a disquieting fact. These strange bones weren't something out of mythology, that they were the remnants of species that once walked this earth. And that's where the idea of dinosaurs as this revolutionary idea that the earth has not always looked like it does now really took hold. But surely mammals, which we are, that made it through that extinction bottleneck 66 million years ago, well, they won't go down a similar road. We're here to stay, right? I'm Seth Shostak, and this is Big Picture Science from the SETI Institute. I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode, T-Rex, Dinosaurs, and the Brutal Truth of Extinction. We dive into the T-Rex files. Picture this, the largest carnivore that's ever walked on Earth, more than 25 feet long, its head 15 feet above you. It can run 25 miles per hour, its jaws can crush a car, and its body is covered in feathers. You are looking at the T-Rex. You could say that since we first looked at the remains of this formidable animal, we've never looked away. The scientific and public fascination with Tyrannosaurus rex whose name means King of the Tyrant Lizards, hasn't wavered since Barnum Brown unearthed its skeleton from the sands of Montana more than 100 years ago. Later we'll hear how that discovery changed paleontology and our concept of ourselves. But first, why the most famous of all the dinosaurs is currently having an identity crisis. As we said, there's no dinosaur like T-Rex. It is singular in its awesomeness, the one and only, or is it? Is he or she really three? In a story rocking the paleontology community, a team of researchers is claiming that the species T-Rex is really three different species. After comparing the physical differences among fossils, they propose that T-Rex be joined by Tyrannosaurus imperator and Tyrannosaurus regina. But some paleontologists strongly disagree with this new classification. My name is Thomas Carr. I am a vertebrate paleontologist, and I am an associate professor of biology at Carthage College in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Dr. Carr was a co-author of a rebuttal published in Evolutionary Biology to the, so to speak, Tyrannosaurus claim. Despite his disagreement, he outlines the supposed case for three species of T. rex. It's based not on dinosaur DNA, which we don't have, sadly, but on the size variation of certain bones. Well, T-Rex, to begin with, is a fairly well-studied animal, and over 1,800 features have been identified as variable in T-Rex. However, in this study, the author has identified only two features with which to establish three species. First feature is the ratio of the circumference of the thigh bone to its length, and also the form of the second and third teeth of the lower jaw. In some cases, the second tooth is big and in others the second tooth is small and so those are the two anatomical features on which these three species are based here's how the authors say the proposed species rex imperator and regina differ transverse rex is a robust morph with one incisor transverse imperator is a robust morph with two incisors 
And Tyrannosaurus regina is a grassomorph with one incisor. And, and when you say robust, I mean, you mean they're tough guys. They're muscular? Is that? Uh, no, it, robust has to do with the circumference of, of the thigh bone of the femur. So at one end of the spectrum, we have you know a, a large circumference relative to femur length. And at the other end, it's, it's less than that. The femur or thigh bone of a T-Rex is the largest bone in the animal. So what they did is they take a bunch of these femurs and they measure their circumference and then they divide each of those circumferences by the length of the bone and they find that, well, uh, the variation isn't very much in these ratios. Um, if you actually look at the measurements, the difference between those extremes is about the height of a coffee cup, six inches, which strikes me as a trivial difference for an animal that's 42 feet long. So who is making this claim? Well, it's a team of three making the claim of a species trifecta a vertebrate paleontologist, a mathematician, and a man who has been in the field a long time, Gregory Paul. Uh, Greg is a well-known, very talented amateur paleontologist. To my knowledge, he doesn't have an advanced degree, but he is a very uh, skilled artist. He's also a very skilled observer. He has published books on paleontology, dinosaurs, and he's published a few technical articles. Okay, but... I mean, you know, there's no, no reason to be elitist, as they say, about these sorts of things, because paleontology in particular has a history that involves amateurs who really got the field going, you know, 100 years ago. So that's OK. Yeah, I agree with that. Actually, no, Greg, personally, I've known him for quite some time. I respect his work and I, I like the man, but we can't be right about all things all the time. Well, and as you know, Seth, these revisions are the basis of science, especially when it comes to the reclassification of old bones. So even the boundaries of living species are hard to define, and that's why taxonomy is always in flux. Well, that's right, and you can understand it. I mean, you know, what about dogs, right? They don't all look the same. If you measured their bones, I'm sure you'd see some sort of variation, and it depends on things like their age or their sex or... So it's very difficult to tell whether a difference that you might find is due to speciation, in other words, is the product of evolution, or just individual variety within the species. Well, one scientist says he's glad this debate has spilled out of the halls of academia. I'm, I'm sort of glad that this debate actually made it onto the front page news, so to speak, giving the public at large a glimpse at what we actually do as scientists for some of our research. My name is Peter Makovicki. I am a professor in earth sciences at the University of Minnesota. I'm a vertebrate paleontologist, so somebody who studies extinct life. And in my particular case, I'm interested in the evolutionary history of dinosaurs. There is definitely, I wouldn't say it's arbitrary, but uh, there is certainly, you know, a healthy debate and sometimes a lack of consensus about these species designations, which are hypotheses. We have to remember these are hypotheses that, you know, a specialist in the field will propose based on some observations. For example, you might remember when the species name was changed of another iconic dinosaur, a sauropod. Here's why they once thought Brontosaurus and Apatosaurus were separate species. The original designation of Apatosaurus was based on juvenile material. And so one of the traits that was used to diagnose it was that it only had three vertebrae in its sacrum. So three vertebrae made up the, the part of the spine that connects to the hips. And then Brontosaurus was supposedly different because it had five. Um, but it turned out the original 
Apatosaurus material was juvenile and, and that when the animal grew, it would just fuse on a couple more vertebrae. So the lack of fusion was a growth feature. They concluded that there was no basis to separate them. They were one and the same species, and we could call that long-necked dino brontosaurus again. But then scientists unearthed more fossils, did more comparisons, and concluded that brontosaurus and apatosaurus were different enough that they were different species. Although the debate is continuing. Dr. Carr says that Greg Paul and his colleagues based their claim for T. rex dimorphism, that is, two forms distinct in structure, on their study of 37 specimens attributed to the animal. It, it sounds like you have a fairly small data set, or they have a fairly small data set with which to work, which could lead to, I, I suppose, errors simply because, you know, any two members of the same species, one might be older than the other or something like that. And, you know, that they could look different in the fossil record, even though they were, you know, father and son or something like that. Roughly, how many examples do we have of, you know, thigh bones and, and teeth of T-Rex? I mean, is, is this a big sample or, or is it a small sample? In this study, uh, sample size is actually a germane issue. In order to statistically identify dimorphism, say dimorphism in the thigh or dimorphism in, in the teeth, requires sample sizes that we simply don't have for T-Rex just yet. So for the ephemeral data, there's a sample size of 25, um, which is really low, and it's worse for the teeth. There's only about a dozen data points there. So modeling has shown that to identify dimorphism in animals, we need a sample size of at least 50 to have any precision. And recently, my colleagues have concluded that if we're to identify dimorphism uh, in fossil animals, we need to have at least 35 of each group. And for T-Rex, we're nowhere near that. Okay, well, if I can somewhat summarize what you just said there, the problem is there really aren't enough skeletons of T-Rex to be able to credibly establish that, well, this guy's not the same as that guy. It's a different species. This just could be variation within the species. It's maybe like trying to separate Homo sapiens out on the basis of their height. If you only have five or ten people, you're not going to be able to do that. In fact, you're never going to be able to do that. We paleontologists or, or taxonomists, whether we work on dinosaurs or, or fruit flies or uh, lichens, have these debates frequently. Delimiting species and figuring out whether you're dealing with you know, one species that's super variable in some of its traits or many species that each individually are very invariant in those traits is a very common debate in evolutionary biology. But these debates are often hidden, so to speak, in specialist journals, uh, peer-reviewed literature that's sort of only accessed by people who work in the field. Why has this discussion, though, ignited such passionate debate? Simply put, because it's T-Rex. It's probably the most iconic of all dinosaurs. Um, you know, sort of, once you throw T-Rex into the mix, then, uh, yeah, then the debate goes to 10 or 11 or whatever number you want to attach to it. <laughs> you have to have a pretty big mixing bowl to throw T-Rex into the mix. Well, as, a, as an insider, Pete, can you give us a sense of just how heated it's gotten? Has it, is it pretty bitter or is it all in the spirit of scientific debate? Well, I think uh, there, there are some people who have, uh, you know, sort of uh, nailed their flag to the claim that there are multiple species of T-Rex. And I know that there were some uh, online sort of debate forums where there was 
a little bit of heated back and forths. Um, I believe one of the accusations was uh, one side was accusing the others of being flat earthers in this debate, which of course is, is completely besides the point. But it gives you an idea of, let's say, some of the feelings that are at play here. You know, it reminds me of the passionate debate among astronomers and planetary scientists that is still going on about whether Pluto is a planet or a dwarf planet or a Kuiper Belt object. And it has been very intense. It's gone on for years. It's also been very emotional. Would you say this is this is comparable? Yeah, actually, I think that's a that's a wonderful parallel. Uh, it's an analogy I hadn't made myself, but I'm going to use it now. So you might be asking, well, what's in a name? What's at stake with this debate about species? So when we ask questions in biology, especially species or questions that involve multiple species, for example, ecological questions or evolutionary questions, it's very important to know what we're comparing to what. And so from that perspective, having some idea that, you know, this group of organisms over here is responding somehow as a unit to something in their environment because they have shared ancestry, because they belong to one lineage or one population, is a vital piece of information. If, if we're sort of lumping things together that maybe aren't actually the same thing, we are muddying the waters and we don't have the necessary information to actually tease apart those questions. So, Thomas, I may not be losing sleep about this, but you may be. And if so, why? Why is this so important? At a personal level, um, I'm somewhat invested in this. Uh, I published a very extensive study of growth in T-Rex back in 2020. And I've seen just about everything, and including T-Rexes from the bottom of the unit of rock in which it's found all the way to the top. And I was actually prepared uh, for the off chance that I would see features that would tip me off that maybe there's more than one species here. I was ready for that, but I simply didn't see any evidence to support that intuition. This multiple species hypothesis is destabilizing. It's doing the exact opposite of what taxonomy, that's the naming of species, should do. Uh, taxonomy should result in stability. And it doesn't, since most of the fossils can't even be identified based on their criteria. And if we were to accept that, then it would throw, you know, our understanding of T-Rex into disarray. And it could cascade out more broadly. So people at museums might start changing the labels, the identifications of the fossils in their public galleries based on evidence that really isn't that strong at all. And so it was very important for myself and my team to basically reel this in. Well, for now, the label on the skeleton of Sue in the entrance hall of Chicago's Field Museum stays as it is. You know, Molly, I'm, I'm sure what the label says doesn't matter to the majority of people who go into the Field Museum. They just want to see the bones. I mean, it's so impressive whether you know the name or not. But, you know, this is indeed very typical of science. It's Very often it's being fought, uh, fought out in the weeds. And of course, let's face it, unless you're a specialist, you know, you're not going to get involved in this debate. And you could say, so, so what's the difference? Well, from your point of view, maybe there isn't any, but it is important to understand how science works, how to understand that getting these classifications, this taxonomy correct, makes a big difference in our understanding of the whole question of dinosaurs.
So for now, the label on the skeleton of Sue in the entrance hall of Chicago's Field Museum stays as it is. The debate over species is an example of how we're always revising our scientific understanding of prehistory. Up next, how just the discovery of T-Rex shook up more than the world of paleontology. It changed the world in so many ways to say the Earth is constantly changing and then perhaps humans are constantly changing as well. We are digging into the T-Rex files on this episode of Big Picture Science. paleontology career that would upend the field began in a field more than a hundred years ago. Barnum Brown was this farm boy from Kansas and he found seashells while following his father's plow and wondered how seashells ended up under a farm in Kansas 600 miles from the nearest ocean. He had no way of knowing that 300 million years ago a massive inland sea covered the interior of North America. In fact, a fossil of a swimming dinosaur, a pleosaur, would be eventually unearthed in Kansas. But for Barnum, in the late 19th century, the deep history of the Earth remained a puzzle. He kept on searching for that answer, and that answer led him to becoming one of the best dinosaur hunters and collectors that the world has ever seen. Barnum Brown earned the nickname Mr. Bones because of his uncanny knack for finding them. Now... Author David Randall says it might be tempting to dismiss that as luck and brand Barnum as a dilettante because he lacked formal training. In some ways, I would caution against just saying that Barnum wasn't a professional paleontologist because it was the era where there were no professional paleontologists. It was the gap, that one generation between, you know, the English naturalists who came up with theories while they were also tending their farms to the idea that you could be a professional scientist. He was the bridge. He was of the paleontology of, you know, dust and rocks and bones and the weather. He was not of the paleontology of pencils and paper and books. So through his whole career, he only wrote two or three scientific papers. But by the end of his career, he had found more than 50% of the dinosaur specimens that were on the hall of the American Museum of Natural History. Barnum Brown, who incidentally was named after the famed showman, had been tasked by the American Museum of Natural History with finding dinosaur bones. Fossils had become something of a trophy for the rich during the Gilded Age, and Henry Fairfield Osborne, the head of the museum, believed that they were the key to bringing more visitors to its exhibit halls. Barnum's pursuit of bones took him across the American West, digging in Wyoming, for example, before leading an expedition to the Hell Creek Formation in Montana. There, he made an extraordinary find, a set of fossilized, razor-sharp teeth jutting from a massive lower jaw. Now, dinosaurs are scene-stealers, we know, but this story is as much about the determined personalities of the humans, Mr. Brown, Mr. Osborne, and others, as it is the fearsome fossils they unearthed and displayed. It is through their efforts that we came to realize the implications that T. rex has for all species. Mr. Randall's book... The Monster's Bones, The Discovery of T-Rex and How It Shook Our World. David, you tell the story of Barnum Brown, 
who grew up on a farm in Kansas and who sought fame and fortune by finding new dinosaur fossils. Now, that was a little over a century ago, but when did we first recognize that strange and occasionally huge animals once roamed the Earth? So dinosaurs have been part of human existence for as long as there's been humans. Um, you know, Native American tribes, they recognized dinosaur bones as the grandfathers of the buffalo, or there are other native terms for this. Um, in Western culture, it was really in England in the uh, late 1700s, early 1800s, where we started to have this realization that these strange bones weren't something out of mythology, that they were the remnants of species that once walked this earth. And that's where the idea of dinosaurs as this revolutionary idea that the earth has not always looked like as it, as it does now. And that was this explosion of this pursuit of this idea of what has the earth history really looked like. So I think that the attitude at that time would have been every creature that ever existed existed now, right? And the, there were no missing creatures. You know, the, the, the fauna of the earth were all on display today. Uh, that must have been uh, quite a realization, actually, that, uh, th you know, it would have been a different contents in your local zoo if you had lived 100 million years ago. It, it changed the earth and changed the world in so many ways to say that, you know, you had this concept of extinction. You had this concept that, you know, these English countrysides were once rivers or lakes or, you know, deserts or other all these other things, that the earth is constantly changing and then perhaps humans are constantly changing as well. I think that's the reflection that kind of goes unsaid when people look at dinosaurs, is this idea that this is a snapshot in time and how humans may appear 40 or 50 million years from now is going to be much different as well. So when Barnum Brown first found a bone that later became ascribed to T-Rex, you know, any idea of what that was like? Did he recognize that this was special right from the get-go, or did he just throw it into a box? So this, he knew it was special right from the get-go. And the context of this was that the American Museum felt like it was falling behind its competitors, the Carnegie Museum and what we now know as the Fields Museum. And Barnum Brown was being pushed very hard to find something new. And, uh, you know, the, the showstopper that would bring people in the doors. Uh, he had earlier found a Triceratops, and by the time it got back to New York, it had been crushed. So he felt like his job was on the line. So he was out there pretty desperate in Montana, in, in Jordan, Montana, and he, uh, he found this outcropping that was incredibly hard rock, and he couldn't get through it with his normal, you know, normal tools. So he, he found a bunch of dynamite, and he didn't typically use dynamite, but you know, reading between the lines, I think it was a little bit of frustration too. You know, he almost felt like, I, I'm fr I, I just need to blow something up right now. So he blew off the top of this, uh, this whole top, which he called Sheba Mountain. And he looks down into the pit and he sees the leg bones and the, the pelvis of this monster, essentially. And he writes in a letter to uh, Henry Fairfield Osborne, who was the head of the American Museum of Natural History. I found something that has never been described by, by Marsh, which was you know one of the leaders of the Bone Wars. And it's a carnivorous dinosaur. And this is exactly what Osborne wanted to hear. He knew suddenly that he had his blockbuster and he couldn't wait to get it to New York as quickly as possible. I have to say that this certainly played uh, with me just in the manner you described. I grew up very close to uh, the capital, Washington, D.C. And I, you know, as a kid would go to the 
the museums of natural history, and there, there's several museums there, of course. But the thing I always wanted to see were the dinosaur bones, you know, and they were all connected together with steel rods or whatever. But that was the exhibit that drew me in, and judging on the basis of what I saw elsewhere, drew everyone in. I mean, it's there's something fascinating about this. I Also, you talk about in your book how the existence and then the disappearance of dinosaurs were used to bolster ideas about human cultures. That, you know, physical strength, which obviously these animals had, that was not enough to guarantee endless survival. And wasn't that kind of used to, you know, pat ourselves on the back and say, well, we're not as strong as the dinos, but we're a lot smarter. Exactly. So dinosaurs fit into this almost morality play that a lot of museums presented to the public, that intelligence is what sets us apart from other creatures. And there was also this, you know, somewhat racial underpinning of it as well. Osborne, the head of the American Museum of Natural History, he was a believer in eugenics, and he was a believer that, you know, that the white, quote-unquote, Nordic race was superior to others. And he saw life as this continuum where it continues to improve into what he saw was the most superior beings that ever walked the earth, which were essentially white Northern European humans. So for him, a T-Rex was the perfect scoreboard, essentially, that it's bigger than us, it's stronger than us, it's fiercer than us, but we're alive and it's not. So something must have changed and that must be intelligence. This was before there were theories of, you know, an asteroid hitting the earth and the, the dinosaur extinction event. Yeah, what, what did they think actually had done in the dinosaurs? They literally thought it was a uh, quote-unquote lack of brains. So as soon as the T-Rex was displayed in, uh, at the American Museum, the museum was hounded with letters asking, how did this, why, why aren't there more T-Rexes? Well, how did this die out? And one of the, the head of the vertebrate paleontology division, he wrote a, uh, an op-ed in the New York Times basically saying, we don't know what killed the dinosaurs, but we do think lack of brains had a lot to do with it. Let, let's talk a bit about T-Rex. I think I can say without fear of contradiction that this monster carnivore is everyone's favorite dinosaur. Why do you think that is? Or maybe you don't even think it is. I think it is. I think it's the one that people are drawn to naturally. And I think it's something that you've seen in the history of T-Rex as well. Before T-Rex, all of the famous dinosaurs were herbivores, you know, seropods, the ones with the very long necks. And the public liked them, but they didn't, they didn't go crazy over them. Um, they were almost more curiosities than anything else. And you can kind of see why. If you have a very big herbivore, it seems kind of peaceful. It, it doesn't seem there's that much excitement. Um, it's almost, if you remember the first Jurassic Park movie, they go through and that's when the beautiful John Williams score is everything. And it just seems like the nice, the nice part of dinosaurs. Um, as soon as the T-Rex entered the scene, it really implied that the world was a much more dramatic place and a deadlier place. That if you had a carnivore like this, then suddenly all of society, you know, animal society, has to be much more complex. If you have a hunter coming after you like this, then the potential prey has to have some kind of defensive mechanisms. So that implies some kind of social cohesion or other type of defenses. Um, if you have both of these living at the same time, that that implies an environment that can sustain them all. So it, the earth becomes much more complex and there's many more shades of gray and, and just colors overall. And you can see that all the parts of life, the drama of everyday survivals hap has been happening for millions upon millions of years, well before humans entered the scene. 
The fact that he found that as his first fossil uh, for the museum suggests to me that, you know, there must be an awful lot of T-Rex bones around. I mean, T-Rex wasn't sort of an isolated, uh, sort of a rare critter. There were a lot of T-Rexes apparently in the Western United States. Is there any explanation for that? So T-Rex, I saw one study that said something like over the millions of years that T-Rex were around, that existed on Earth, there were something like 2 billion of them. Um, of those, about 200,000 could have been fossilized. Um, and of those, there have only been about 200 that have been found. And Barnum Brown found three of them, which is pretty incredible when you think about it. Um, he was also lucky that Back at that time, paleontology really was like exploring the moon, you know, or going to the Arctic or one of these other grand adventures, kind of going to the blank spots on the map. And he was one of the first to go to the Hell Creek region in Montana, which we now know as one of the most abundant fields of T-Rex and other large uh, dinosaurs of that era. So he was he was first, and also he was a lot he was simply better than other people. Um, he had this nickname, Mr. Bones. He was able to go into fields that other people picked over and come out with huge specimens that somehow everybody else had missed. So he he had this combination of you know luck and skill and timing, and that gave us T Rex. But people had been in the Hell Creek Formation before. I mean, they could have found it. Yeah, they could have. They just he, they they never did. It was he had some innate ability to find dinosaurs that nobody else did. Well, finally, David. You know, what always astounds me when I see documentaries or whatever about these paleontologists is that they're carefully, you know, brushing away the dirt or whatever on a rock face, you know, very softly, gently, not to dis you know, displace anything. And then they see something that, to me, I wouldn't even have noticed. And they say, oh, that's the third digit, uh, you know, whatever it is. I mean, they can identify not only the, the part of the animal, but they can identify, of course, the animal all from essentially you know, a smaller piece of bone than I find after dinner. <laughs> I, I, I assume Barnum Brown was particularly good at this. He was, and that's one thing I've been struck by with paleontology as well. You know, in my, in my day job, I cover Wall Street for Reuters. And when you cover something long enough, you start to see how somebody's mind works, and you think, okay, maybe I could do that eventually. But with paleontology, it's so hard because it's so many, it's so many chains of logic that if X, then Y, then if Y, then Z. And you can say, okay, if it had, if a tooth had this shape, if it was flat or if it was, if it was curved or if it was sharp, those all mean different things. Um, if this toe or this knee bone is a certain way, then that means that, then this means that. And if that, if it's, if that Y, then, then I can think of Z. And if I can think of Z, then I can keep on going. And you can start building these big chains of, and you start world building essentially. And that's where Barnum Brown had such a innate ability to see not only, you know, where to dig, you know, so much of paleontology is kind of where to dig in the first place. And he could spot, you know, subtle variations of color to say, okay, this, this gray implies to me that this could have been a riverbed once upon a time. And therefore that's more likely where a creature's bones would have settled and started the process of fossilization. Um, but on top of that to say, okay, I can see this nub and this makes me assume that maybe this is the beginning of a femur and it's worth it to me to keep digging. Uh, you know, so much of paleontology too is this willingness to keep trying under almost certain failure. 
If you're out there in the middle of Montana on a summer day and it's really hot, you're going to dig and you're going to find nothing. You're going to find nothing day after day after day after day. And for a lot of people, if they finally do find something, they get so excited that they destroy it because they rush too fast. Barn and Brown had incredible patience. And that's what really set him apart from everybody else. He could dig but not destroy. And he was able to bring things back in one piece. David Randall, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you very much for having me. David Randall is the author of The Monster's Bones, The Discovery of T-Rex and How It Shook Our World. Well, you know, Molly, this, this idea that a farm boy is the guy who's found, you know, this enormous fraction of the dinosaur skeletons that we see in museums, that's very reminiscent of what happened in science in general in the 19th century, right? Because, you know, there weren't professional scientists to speak of. It was all amateurs. I mean, it was a farm boy from the Midwest that found Pluto. Same thing in astronomy. Countless furry, hairless, and leather-skinned creatures crawl, leap, and fly among us. Why talk about mammals in a dinosaur episode? Because they're what came next. Some mammals survived that asteroid. They endured the chaos and the anarchy that came with a six-mile-wide rock colliding with the Earth. Next, paleontologist Steve Brusate takes us beyond the T-Rex files in this episode of Big Picture Science. After the dinosaurs exited the world stage, a lot of space opened up for mammals to evolve and diversify, and they did. I'm Steve Brusati. I'm a paleontologist and professor at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, and I am the author of the new book, The Rise and Reign of the Mammals. Given that, we issued him a challenge. Steve, I wonder if we could begin with you listing as many mammals living today as you can in like 15 or 30 seconds or so, just to give us an idea of their stunning diversity. Sure, wow, I didn't know I'd be quizzed, so let's see. Well, there's us humans, of course, and all of our primate relatives, monkeys and apes and so on, and there's rodents and there's rabbits and there's bats and there's whales and there's elephants and there's seals and there's bears and dogs and cats. And then there's things like armadillos and sloths. And then there's mammals that are really peculiar, things like possums and kangaroos and wallabies and koalas that raise their babies in pouches. And then there's probably the strangest mammals of all, all the ones that still lay eggs, the monotremes like the platypus and the echidna. So I don't know if that's 15 seconds or so, but I think that's just a lot of mammals I named, and hopefully that gives a, an indication of the incredible diversity and variety of this family of mammals of which we are one part. Clearly, the story of mammals is not just about us. Humans fill the niche of a single chapter in his book about the history of mammals, one that the esteemed dinosaur hunter wrote as a follow-up to his riveting The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs. Dr. Brusate's paleontological focus has long been on dinosaurs. In field seasons spent kneeling in the sands of the Sahara and other arid fossil sites, he's unearthed a dozen new species of vertebrates. His expertise has been showcased in BBC documentaries and the latest Jurassic World movie. So, is it a demotion of purpose to go from 
covering snarling, stomping dinosaurs to small, scurrying rodents. Steve, does the study of mammals carry the weighty, exciting questions of dinosaur research? Yes, yes. To me, mammals are as exciting as dinosaurs. And let's face it, we are a mammal. So when I write about mammals, I'm writing about our story. This is our family. It is our family history. And that, I think, makes mammals more relevant. So that motivated me. And the other thing is, yes, I I have studied dinosaurs. Much of my career has been as a dinosaur researcher. I continue to study dinosaurs. I'll always love dinosaurs. But as I've studied dinosaurs, I've just increasingly come to question Well, then what? (laughs) The dinosaurs had their day. It was a long time. They dominated the earth for a long time. And the and then what is mammals. Some mammals survived that asteroid. They endured the chaos and the anarchy that came with a six-mile-wide rock colliding with the earth and unleashing earthquakes and tsunamis and, and wildfires and acid rain and all that destruction. And then those mammals had a largely empty world to seas, and they did. Well, in in short, the story that we're going to tell is the story of survivors. (laughs) Our ancestors were survivors. They survived this apocalypse. And, And let's find out more about how they did that. But the mammals didn't come after the dinosaurs. And I just want to point that out because that's an important point that you make early in the book. Mammals were around when the dinosaurs died. And what were those mammals like? Mammals were relegated to the shadows. The dinosaurs kept mammals small. For over 150 million years, dinosaurs and mammals lived together. But during that time, the time of Brontosaurus and Stegosaurus and T-Rex and so on, during that whole time, mammals never got bigger than a badger, as far as we know, because the dinosaurs were keeping them small. The dinosaurs held the larger ecological niches. But the more we discover from the fossil record, the more fossil mammals we find, the more we see an unexpected story emerging. And that is that although mammals were very small throughout the entire time of dinosaurs, these mammals were impressive in their own ways. They were highly diverse. There were many species. There were scurriers and tree climbers and burrowers and swimmers and even gliding mammals that soared through the air on wings of skin. There was great diversity at small size. And yes, the dinosaurs kept the mammals small, but the mammals did the opposite. They were so good at living anonymously, being small, that they kept the dinosaurs big. You never saw a T-Rex the size of a mouse or a Triceratops the size of a rat. It just didn't happen because mammals held those niches and they were very good at it. And that's how things roughly stayed for a very long time until that asteroid randomly fell out of the sky one day 66 million years ago. And it was a single moment, the worst day in the history of life, and it changed everything. And in fact, you say everything hinged on what happened in the days and the months after the asteroid hit. This was a crucial time for those, for those mammals, as you said, those, those little mammals. But what qualities did those mammals have that allowed them to survive in general, but also those first days and months after the asteroid hit? The asteroid hitting, it was a single moment, an instant. And what happened in the immediate aftermath of that, what actually was experienced by individual animals and individual plants and individual ecosystems as the wildfires burned, as the tsunamis crashed into the shore, 
as the earthquakes rumbled, what those individual animals experienced, the whole rest of the history of life, everything that would come afterwards hinged on those moments. And mammals, thankfully, were able to stare down that asteroid. And not only mammals as a whole, but in particular, we had ancestors that faced the asteroid and got through. They wouldn't have looked like us. They wouldn't have been humans. They wouldn't have even been primates. They would have been probably some small little mammal about the size of a mouse, maybe the size of a rat, but it would have you know, been covered with, with hair, would have fed its babies milk, would have had a pretty big brain, keen senses. It would have had the same kind of teeth we do, molar teeth and premolar teeth and so on. But it does seem like the mammals that did survive because some mammals went extinct. In fact, the majority of mammals that were alive the day the asteroid hit, they died out. Only some mammals made it through. And the ones that made it through seemed to be the ones that were smaller, so they could hide more easily. They could probably burrow more easily. They probably grew from a baby into an adult faster. And then also these mammals seem to have had a more omnivorous diet. They were generalists. They could eat lots of different things. So more than anything, being small and being able to eat lots of different foods, those things seem to have been the keys to surviving the asteroid impact. Now, the lineages of mammals that emerged from that event that continue today are the egg-laying monotremes, the marsupials, and the placentals. Just briefly, can you just remind us what those three groups are and how they came to diverge from each other? Today, there are uh, about 6,000 species of mammals that live on the Earth, uh, including us. The vast majority of those mammals are placental mammals. We are a placental mammal. We were either non-existent or very, very rare and very marginal before the asteroid hit. It seems to have been the asteroid that ushered in our success, probably by wiping away a lot of competitors and giving impetus to animals that could raise their babies for a long time, nurture their young, grow to larger sizes. We give live birth to well-developed babies. And that's very different from, say, how a dinosaur reproduced by laying eggs, you know, or a bird or a lizard or so on. Uh, and so most of the mammals we know of are placental mammals. Bats and whales and elephants and dogs and cats and monkeys and rabbits and mice and so on are all placental mammals. About 95% of mammals are placentals. But then there are these two other groups of mammals that are still around. And, and one group is the marsupials. These are things like koalas and kangaroos and possums. And they give birth to tiny little babies that are so feeble that they have to keep developing further in a pouch on their mother. Uh, there were a lot of these uh, early marsupials that were living in the Cretaceous period with the dinosaurs, and they were widely distributed. They lived all over the northern continents, North America, Europe, and Asia. And these marsupials almost went extinct when the asteroid hit. They barely held on, and that put a real damper on their diversity, and they would never really recover to that same level. However, some of them would migrate southwards into South America and eventually Australia, and those two places either were, in the case of South America, or still are, island continents. So those marsupials that were marooned there, they diversified in their own ways, unconnected to the rest of the world, and they really made those continents their own, and that's what saved the marsupials. And then there is 
the really the strangest mammals of all. There's only a handful of species. These are the monotremes, the platypus, the echidna. They only live in Australia and some of the surrounding islands. These are mammals that lay eggs, like their reptilian-esque ancestors. They really do seem like they just were, were lucky to hold on, and, and, and only a few species did hold on in Australia. And I don't know if there's even a good explanation for that. It might just be the, the luck and the chance that comes with millions of years of evolution. Well, finally, Steve, the last chapter of your book is about the future of mammals, and I take it that the future is not guaranteed, much the way that the future of life on this planet is never a guarantee. When we talk about a, a sixth extinction, we don't usually think of humans as part of the species that will disappear, but I don't know at this point. Um, what traits will see mammals, either human or non-human, through this bottleneck, this perilous time that we're in now? I'm not going to directly answer that, not to be rude, but just because I don't want to try to look too much into the future, because as a paleontologist, I'm comfortable looking into the past. I'm not so comfortable predicting the future. There are so many unknowns, and the world is changing so quickly. But what I can say is that we do have this glorious geological and fossil record of four and a half billion years of Earth history, and we can turn to the mammals we see as fossils to look at how these mammals actually coped with things like global warming spikes. There has been global warming before. Other causes, of course, but it's happened before. What we do see is that in the past, temperature rises have had profound effects on mammal communities, but it's not always that a lot of species go extinct. Sometimes they do, but other times it just leads to a lot of migration, it leads to a lot of change, and it leads to a changing of the guard. And the dominant mammal species of the day often disappeared or have faded away, and other species, which had been marginal up to that point, become more diverse, more abundant, more prominent. What we're seeing now, I think, is that mammals are at the most perilous state that they have been in since our ancestors stared down that asteroid. About 350 species of mammals have gone extinct since our species, Homo sapiens, began trotting around the globe. So we know that we are changing the planet. We know we're changing climates and environments. And we know that a lot of mammals that inspire us, things like tigers and lions and elephants and polar bears and whales and so on, are being affected. So it's really on us uh, to ameliorate that. And I am confident that the things evolution has endowed us with, big brains, consciousness, the ability to work in groups, these things will help us deal with our current climate crisis. Steve Rosate, thank you so much for speaking with us. It was a pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Steve Rosate is a paleontologist and professor at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. He's the author of The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs and the new book, The Rise and Reign of the Mammals. Okay, Molly, so uh, this brings us to the big picture of this show. Big dino, big picture. Lay it on me. You know, Seth, changing... T-Rex into three species may or may not happen. It sounds like that is an ongoing debate. But this battle over ideas and how we present them and how we present the past and what it means for science stretches, well, maybe not back as far as the dinosaurs, but at least back through the history of scientific endeavors. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I have to say, the thing that strikes me about all this 
is the discovery of the dinosaurs, and then suddenly we're not special anymore. It's just like, you know, the Copernican principle and all that stuff. You know, we find that we're, we're not the biggest things on, that ever lived on Earth, uh, and we pat ourselves on the back and say we're the smartest things. That's why those guys bought it. But in fact, that's not why they bought it. It was something they had no control over. It, that's right. It dislodges us, or it dislodged us from this idea that we were the center of the universe. I did find that... Um, that concept that people thought dinosaurs were not intelligent, and that the dinosaurs were dumb, and that's how they died out. It just seems so antiquated, doesn't it, and, and backwards, but yet that is what people believe. Yep. 19th century science. We're special. Well, here's some good news, though, Seth, on this idea of humans maybe reclaiming some of their importance, and that was found in the discussion with Steve Brissate. We are the mammals. We are among the mammals that survived. We must have some special qualities <laughs> that got us well, this far. Yeah, well, I, I suppose we do. And believe me, I'm going to treat all the mammals I meet today with special reverence. Of course, as he put forth, our future is not certain, or at least the future of our mammalian relatives, given the pressures they're facing with climate change. Did you note, Seth, this is just in, in the, I don't know, the bucket of curiosities that Greg Paul, who proposed that T-Rex is three species, is not a professional paleontologist, but in some ways neither was Barnum Brown. But both of them have been on the forefront of leading these discussions about T-Rex. So the lesson there is never sell short the amateurs. This show would not be possible without the highly evolved talent of senior producer Gary Niederhoff, assistant producers Brian Edwards and Shannon Rose Geary, and intern Emily Yediker. I am the executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization whose efforts include understanding the mechanisms and prevalence of life. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, a big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. Special thanks to a few of our Patreon Velociraptors, Mary in Connecticut, Rebecca Ferreira and Rusty and Betsy Clark in St. Petersburg, Florida. The original music in the show is by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. This episode of Big Picture Science, which looks at the new science of old bones, is called The T-Rex Files. <laughs> <laughs>